Hey, uh, thank you uh, to Matt Robertson and bringing all of the Edison artwork to our walls this week. They had an art show and choir concert here, so uh, take some time. That's all down the hallways and all around, and it's fun to get to display that stuff. And they said there was a lot of people here Thursday night, so it's awesome to, that they can come to our church and be a part of our community here. So <clears throat> we're continuing on in our series um, we have their spiritual warfare in the lies we believe. And I want to begin today with a, a verse. It's Proverbs fourteen twelve, and it says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And we are masters at justifying our sinful actions. And Satan knows this. And as we discussed last Sunday, the Bible tells us that, the, that Satan is the father of lies, that in him there is no truth. He studies us, and his desire, as we looked at, is to steal, kill, and destroy our lives, to devour us. Because, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we are image bearers of God, created in his image crowned with glory and honor. And so from the very moment that we are born, Satan is obsessed with tarnishing and destroying that image in us and to get us to believe the lie that we are less than God says we are. And so we have an enemy, and there is a battle going on every day for our hearts and minds. And so we spent the first two weeks of this sermon series talking about the, the character qualities of Satan, who he is, what he's up to, what he's trying to do to us. And now the next six weeks, we're going to spend some time taking a look at what are some of the lies that we believe, lies that Satan plants in our mind and heart, lies that lead to destruction in our lives if they're not identified and dealt with and exposed. And today we're going to begin with the lie that says this. There are no consequences for my sin. There are no consequences for my sin. So let's get back to the very beginning to see where this lie begins. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis. First book, chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, God has created Adam and Eve, he's put them in the garden. It says in verse 15 is where we're starting, Genesis 2, 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So those are pretty clear instructions, right? I mean, he says specifically, if you do this, this will happen. You will certainly die. Okay? So let's skip over to chapter 3. In between here, Eve was made. So we're going to look at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say 
You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Excuse me. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. So now Eve repeats the command very clearly. And she would have had to have heard that from Adam because she wasn't created when God gave Adam that command. So Adam, she was created, and he said, hey, God did say, don't eat from that tree or we'll die. And she was like, okay. And then she repeats it. She parrots it back to Satan as he comes to her, okay? Now let's look at verse 4. Satan says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan is kind of mocking God here, isn't he? He's saying, you won't certainly die. I mean, he's not going to kill you. I mean, who else would be left on the earth, right? He just doesn't want you to have the good stuff. He wants to limit you. He wants to control you. You're better than that. And when you think about it, most sin starts with, with that thought. This thought right here. Go ahead and put that up. I can't trust God. So I've got to take matters into my own hands. Isn't that really where most sin starts? So I want you to take a minute and just sit there. And I want you to think about where do you struggle trusting God right now? Where do you struggle trusting God? And then I want you to think about where does that lack of trust then lead you? In what ways do you try to control your life? Or that situation. Because you don't ultimately really trust him. It's not very hard to think of an example, is it? (laughs) It's pretty easy. Now on your own, I want you to read chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. And I want you to make a mental list of all the consequences that came about because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. Okay? Right now in your Bibles, read verses 6 through 13. Make a mental list of what are all the consequences that came about because they chose not to obey. All right, what'd you come up with? What were some of the consequences? Yeah. Uh, they carried shame for 
Okay, they experience shame for the first time. What else? Yeah, Brady? They were afraid of God. Yeah, so they hid from him. What else? They were blaming each other. Yeah, oh, she, she, no, she told me to do it. That woman, right? Good. What else? Yeah. They were embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah, they're trying to cover themselves up, right? Yeah, Phil? A loss of freedom? In what way? What do you mean? Yeah, uninhibited, right? Yeah, good. Yeah. Their relationship with God, each other, and the earth became a struggle. Yeah, great. Their relationship with God and one another and the earth became a struggle. Right, if you keep reading some of the other consequences as you continue to go through there, right, God says that now woman, you know, will have pain in childbirth and men, you'll have to work the ground and there'll be all kinds of, you know, thorns and, and stuff that'll, the ground will be hard, it'll be tough. And then also, if you keep reading down to, I think it's verse 24, it says, after that, he drove the man out, placed him on the east side of the Garden of Eden. Okay, so they were driven out of the garden, this place that God had created, kind of like kicked out of home. They became homeless as a result. And the consequences, consequences didn't just end with Adam and Eve. Because if you look at the next chapter, chapter 4, Adam and Eve's first two kids, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel out of jealousy. He murders him. Like the story gets bad quickly, right? Two chapters later, you see Noah in the flood. Now it's been several hundred years, but God floods the whole earth and basically like hits the reset button with humanity, except for Noah and his family, and and wipes everybody out and pretty much tries to start over. I mean, that's how bad things got when, when left to our own devices, right? So how did this happen? I mean, one moment, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and there's no death, no disease, no natural disasters in nature, perfect intimacy between God and man and and man and wife. And then Satan comes along and, and for the first time makes them kind of question God's goodness. And then all of a sudden, everything starts unraveling. I want you to turn over to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17. It's page 350. I want to talk a little bit about what happens to people when they start believing that God's not good. So in 2 Kings, chapter 17, the people of Israel have been... God has allowed the Assyrians to come in and conquer them and then take them away in exile. So that's what's going on in the story here. And we're going to start down in verse 7. It says, All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods, followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord, their God, that were not right. 
From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles, which basically are, are things that idols that, of worshiping other gods, on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn, your, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. It says that they were stiff-necked. And that's really great imagery there. And that, that word means like haughty, proud, stubborn. And they questioned God, right? Why doesn't he want us to do these things? Why does he have so many commands and rules? And so they tried to create their own happiness. And so they turned to, to idols and other gods of these other nations thinking, well, maybe these gods will have like a lower bar. <laughs> and we can get what we want from life without having to obey so much. And they followed, it says, the practices of other nations to see if, if the world's path and, and maybe this other way of life over here will be more fulfilling than obeying God. Kind of like chasing the American dream, right? It's hard to have the house I want, the cars I want, the clothes I want, take the vacations I want, and have the retirement I want, and give 10% of my income to the church or to God. So I just won't. I know what will make me happy. I know what I need. See, stiff-necked people don't heed warnings. Stiff-necked people don't see the signs that they're slipping into a sinful pattern in their life. Every one of us that are here this morning, we all have things in our life that we feel justified in. Sins that we just kind of excuse away. And the enemy knows this. Right? He knows we're real weak and vulnerable, and he'll just keep digging. And sometimes he might even bring other Christians across our path that will validate the sinful patterns in our life because they're too scared to tell you the truth. Or <clears throat> when we're in a dark place, we want to feel okay about our actions, we'll stop going to the friends who we know will challenge us And we start running to the friends who we know, they're probably going to tell me what I want to hear. I did that this week. (laughs) So I know it's true. Right? When our mind's made up, we don't want to hear anything else. And one of our justifications is usually along the lines of this, well, it's, it's not that bad. I mean, it's just a little lie or a little gossip or a little flirtation, a little inappropriate comment, a little drink, or a little smoke. But sometimes being off 
just a little, when amplified over time, makes a big difference. Big difference. Let me share this story with you about flying. This guy says, I have a friend named Larry who is a retired Air Force pilot. One day he shared with me an interesting fact about flying. He said that for every single degree you fly off course, you will miss your target landing spot by 92 feet for every mile you fly. That amounts to about one mile off target for every 60 miles flown. If you decided to start at the equator and fly around the earth one degree off, you would land almost 500 miles off target. So the longer you travel off course, the further you'll be, you will be away from the intended target. Is that acceptable? Not if I'm on the plane. <laughs> on the flight from New York to Los Angeles, that might put me 40 miles out in the Pacific Ocean. One degree off could be the difference between making it to that important meeting on time or using my seat as a flotation device. One degree. One little concession to sin might have drastic consequences. So I want to ask you this question. What do you think is a recipe for being stiff-necked? What are the warning signs of disobedience? And when I thought about this, I kind of thought, because it's it's kind of a play on words, but I thought about Jeff Foxworthy, you know how he does the routine, you know, if you do this, you might be a redneck. So what I'm asking you is if if you do these things, you might be stiff-necked, all right? So what are some of those things? What are some recipes for stiff-neckedness? It's a tough word. What's that? Pride, yeah. If you're proud, you might be stiff-necked, right? What else? Yes. If you're impatient, okay. Yeah. If you're what? Selfish, okay. What else? What are other things that in your own life, when you've headed down a trail, you know you're not supposed to be on that have been present in your life, in your spirit? Or what have you seen in other people who've done that? Yeah. I think if you are kind of comparing yourself to others instead of God's word, you know, mm. kind of going, well, it's not as bad as them or those people are doing it too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so when you start comparing yourself to others and looking for somebody who's worse than you so you can feel okay about yourself, you might be stiff-necked, right? What else? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, man. You didn't raise your hand, but I'm going to call on you anyways. That's God's grace. Okay. You don't take kindly to criticism or correction. Justin? Okay. You're holding on to things too tightly. Could be money. Could be a lot of things. Yeah. Ignoring guilt. Ooh. Aaron. Mm. Yeah, when you say, oh, I would never do that, right? You have a friend who says that, right? Not you, yeah. Another thing I noticed, yeah, DJ? Right, the kind of admittance of guilt, but like the sincerity when you admit. 
Mm, sincerity when you confess or admit things, yeah. Um, when you start shunning community, you're probably stiff-necked, right? And heading down a path. Proverbs 29.1 is a great warning because it uses this language. It says, whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes <clears throat> will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. So one thing that's true about stiff-necked people is that they lose their sensitivity to the Holy Spirit over time. And, and their heart becomes hard. And before they know it, Satan has the upper hand. And that's why God, in his goodness, and we read it in that story, that account in 2 Kings, time and time again, he sends us warnings. In the Old Testament, he sent his prophets, you know, trying to warn the people of Israel. Now he's got his Holy Spirit in us that's there to convict us of guilt. And it's knocking on the door. It's that voice in your head, you probably shouldn't do that. You probably shouldn't be here. You probably shouldn't be saying that or thinking that, right? I want you to flip over to Hebrews chapter 3, page 1095, so it's a long way from where you've been. Hebrews 3, 1095, verse 7 says this, so as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. He's talking about the time after the Israelites uh, were rescued from Egypt. Where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see, in verse 12, he says, see to it, brothers and sisters, he's talking to fellow Christians, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. You see, we have an individual responsibility to respond to the warnings of the Holy Spirit in our life. Because the more we ignore it, the easier it is to continue to ignore it. And we also, he says, we have a communal responsibility to encourage one another every day. So that people don't get off path and become stiff-necked and hard-hearted. How many times in my own life have I had a friend who I would say was kind of in a stiff-necked season? And I look back after they've done some destructive things and I think, I saw it coming. Why didn't I say something? What was I afraid of? Didn't I care enough? Didn't I love them enough to to say that tough thing? See, guys, as brothers and sisters of Christ, we need to grow 
and our ability to fight for one another's hearts, our desire. Even if it means sometimes that we have to say some uncomfortable things and confront people. And one of the hardest things to accept are the consequences that inevitably come from our poor choices. Paul gives a a vivid illustration of this in the book of Galatians. You go ahead and put that up there. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. He says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So Paul uses an illustration from nature. And you and I know it to be true, okay? When you scatter tomato seeds, what kind of plant is going to grow? A tomato plant, right? Not corn, not green beans. You're going to reap what you sow. Sow tomatoes, tomatoes are going to grow, right? And here's the thing about nature, And I don't know much about nature, but I do know this. I read about it this week. (laughs) That one tomato seed that becomes that one tomato plant doesn't just yield one tomato, does it? It could yield 10. It could yield 100. Right? Likewise, if we lie or lust or gossip or are greedy or jealous, or have anger issues, or unforgiveness, what's going to grow? Not good things. What's going to grow is more lust, more greed, more lies, more jealousy, more anger, more bitterness, more unforgiveness, and it's going to grow, and it's going to multiply, right? Our unchecked sin over time will have drastic consequences. Count on it. And it will multiply into something much more than we ever intended it to do. And we might think that we can manage our sin or that we can hide it or get away with it, but God knows. Hebrews 4.13 says this, nothing, nothing, (laughs) man, Got my hillbilly language here today. Talking too much like Jeff Foxworthy, now I'm saying nothing. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Remember that Galatians verse we just looked at? Put it back up there. It says, this is how it begins. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. What is Paul saying there? You can't fool God? What else? I think it's even stronger than that, Keith. He what? Okay, what he says goes. I mean, it's going to happen, all right? What else? What does that mean? He cannot be mocked. Yeah, Dave?
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that idea of like, God is God, y'all. <laughs> he is holy and righteous and just. And we're just a speck <laughs> of humanity in the midst of seven billion people. And he's like, he's, yeah, it's kind of like how shocked you are sometimes when your three year old talks to you and you're like, who do you think you're talking to here, <laughs> right? God will not be mocked. Man, we better take that seriously. God's not playing games. He made it very clear to Adam and Eve what the consequences of their sin would be. You will die. Right? At that point, there was no plans for them to die. They were going to live forever. Death was only entered into the world because of our disobedience. And God said, I'm going to limit your days now. In the New Testament, Paul put it like this, for the wages of sin is death. There's a cost, a price to be paid. God is just. And when we've been wronged, we want him to be just, right? We want that person that offended us, that hurt us, to get their due punishment. Right? But it it has to work the other way, too is that when we've been the one that has offended, God would be just to punish me in some way or make sure that I understand who I'm dealing with. Our sin required the death of God's only son. And that shows us two things. That shows us, first of all, that he couldn't tolerate our sin. In that moment where Jesus is on the cross and he takes on All of the sin of humanity, past, present, and future for all time, God had to turn his back on Jesus. And that's why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could not stand to look at the ugliness of all of the sin of his creation for all of humanity. The second thing it shows us, though, is how much he loves us, (laughs) that he was willing to bear that and willing to forgive us despite it all. And now here's where it gets tricky sometimes. For those of us that have surrendered our life to Christ, would call ourselves Christians, we live in this tension because there are a lot of promises in the Bible about God's goodness towards us. If you look in just Romans chapter 8 in particular, there's a couple verses, right, probably pretty familiar to you. One says, now there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So once we've been forgiven, we can't be condemned for our sin any longer, it also says, you know, there's, we can't, there's nothing we can do to, to, to go too far from the love of God, right? He loves us indefinitely. So there's this, this, this tension that we live in. Nothing can separate us from his love. And we know that God knew all the sins that we would commit after we got saved. He knew everything I was going to do when he reached out his hand and said, yeah, come on, be a part of my family. Right When he took me in as a son, or you in as a son or daughter, he knows all of my junk, past, present, and future, and I'm still forgiven in Christ. And all of that is true. But this is also true. Our sins have consequences. For one thing, 
People around me get caught in the crossfires of my sin. And so when I'm proud and when I'm selfish or I'm lazy or I'm critical or whatever it is, other people suffer because of that sinful attitude, that spirit in me. People are hurt by my sin and disobedience. No matter how much I try to control the damage, we reap what we sow. And not only do other people suffer because of our sinful choices, but what happens when to us when we get in a pattern of sin that we justify? Does it make us want to be with God more? Not usually. When I'm in a pattern of sin, it usually doesn't make me want to have a quiet time. A lot of times it makes me want to be like Adam and Eve and run to the hills and hide from God. Deep down, we know what we're doing is wrong. And it creates uh, feelings of shame and guilt, right? That make us want to run away and isolate ourselves from God and from other people. I guarantee you, when somebody stops showing up at church, something's up. (laughs) People just don't stop coming for no reason. But here's the beautiful part of the story. And you guys read this yourselves just a moment ago. Chapter 3, verse 8 of Genesis says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? God pursued them. He wanted relationship with them even after They'd blown it. And there are some of you here this morning who wish you hadn't come. Because you know right now you're kind of suffering under the weight of some guilt and shame in your life for some disobedience. And we've all been there. And this morning, God is calling to you, where are you? Is he sad? For you, yeah. Is he maybe even a little disappointed or frustrated in the warnings that you didn't listen to, in the mess you've gotten yourself into? Yes. But the greater emotion in him is love. And more than he wants to punish, he wants to restore. Do you hear that? More than he wants to punish, he wants to restore. The offer of reconciliation is there. His hand is reaching out to you. But forgiveness and restoration requires something on our part. What is that, you ask? (laughs) Well, it requires that we stiff-necked, rebellious children come to him in a posture of humility. And confess our need for him. Psalm 51, King David in the Old Testament, you probably know a lot about him. You know, he slayed Goliath and all that stuff. Well, he also later in his life had an affair and then killed that lady's husband. 
And in a moment where his sin is is painfully exposed, he writes these words. He says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Time and again in the Bible, it says, God opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We have to come humbly, confessing our sin and not sugarcoating it. We've got to be honest, because God won't be mocked, right? And then we have to repent. We have to change our mind. We have to head in a new direction, because that shows God, that shows our community, that, we, that shows the person we offended that we're serious, that, that we're not just joking around here. We understand the impact our sin has had. We have to be sincere. We have to understand our, our necessity to pursue community to help us live in a new way. The proud heart says, I can do it on my own. I've got this. I'm changed. And finally, it, it may require us to go and make things right with the people who have been hurt by our poor choices. And that isn't easy because it's humbling a lot of times. But in the end, we have to believe that honoring God and honoring other people is ultimately going to lead to the healing and the abundant life that he wants to offer us. Now, let me add this one last note. At the end of this process, we've been humbled We've confessed, we've invited community into our life to help us, we've made things right with those we've offended, and now there's still one more thing, and that's this, is we have to go back to the beginning and start asking ourselves some really hard questions. We have to start asking ourselves, what was the lie about God that I started to believe? Or what was the lie about myself that I started to believe? Or what was the lie about others that I started to believe? And we have to wrestle with that. What got this ball rolling? Because if we don't do that hard work, it's kind of like going out in your garden and just going around and pulling all the weeds off at surface level. And underneath are those roots. And if you don't take care of the roots that's causing the weed that you can see, guess what? It's going to grow back. And maybe next time, even stronger. Maybe next time, maybe even more destructive. So today, when we hear his voice, how are we going to respond? Are we going to be humble and confess our sins? Or are we going to be stiff-necked and believe the lie that our sin doesn't have consequences? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, boy, there's a lot of things here. Lord, we need to take you seriously. That when you say, don't do this, you mean it. And you're not saying don't do it because you you want to control us and you want to rob us of joy. 
You're doing it because you know that when we disobey you, because you created us, you know how we best operate, that it's going to lead to destruction in our life. You're trying to save us from some pain (laughs) because you care about us so much. Help us to remember that you are a loving Father who desires good things for us. Lord, we've got to trust that. Lord, help us also just to remember, like, so many things, like, (laughs) that when we see our brothers and sisters struggling, that we've got to go and we've got to confront them, even if they don't want to receive it. Like, a lot of the people didn't receive what the prophets had to say. At least we can say, hey, (laughs) I warned you. I care about you. I'm not going to let you go down this, this road without fighting for your heart. So God, whether, and you're probably doing both. <laughs> so if you're speaking to us this morning about a pattern that we're in that needs to be changed, God, I pray you'd give us the courage to respond. If you're speaking to us this morning about a friend we have in our life that we know needs us right now, I pray you'd give us the courage to be honest. God, meet us wherever we are with whatever it is that we need to be obedient and to love you through our actions today. And Lord, in the end, thank you so much that you say, where are you? God, that you want us. God, you desire to be intimate with us even when we screwed up. Thank you for that kind of grace, for that kind of love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.